From the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, this is Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. Injury Insider is presented by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs. Hello and welcome to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. This show will answer legal questions and debunk personal injury myths with insight and expertise. For 25 years, Derek Hayes has exclusively represented injured parties in Georgia. Now he'd like to put that knowledge to work for you. My name is Lita Brooks, and it's my pleasure to introduce the star of the show, Derek Hayes. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon. I'm the guy with inside expertise. That's That's right. You're the injury insider. Absolutely. Before we begin today's show, a quick reminder that Injury Insider is brought to you by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs, and by the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. All right, let's get started. Well, as you ended the last podcast, you talked about wanting to continue that conversation into the next one, which would be this show, correct? correct? All right. We were talking about elder abuse and the neglect, and you provided some very eye-opening information for everyone to consider. The reality is that our aging population of baby boomers means that nursing homes are growing in number to numbers to meet the needs of our communities it i mean yeah that, that's it i'm going to talk a little bit about that in a second but i guess we can go ahead and cut to it statistics tell the story that's always the thing so with that being said looking at the census from 1990 2000 and 2010 because the numbers for 2020 aren't available yet but think about this 1990 take the age of 65 65 65 years of age and older at that time, in 1990, 31 million plus people were 65 or older. In 2000, that number jumped to 35 million. Wow. This is the baby boomers. Right, right. And then yeah. in 2010, well, that number is now over 40 million. Wow. So the incremental increase has been 4 or 5 million more people at the age of 65 or above. Now, look even older than that. Between the ages of 80 and 84, back in 1990, 3,933,000 people were above that age. In the same time in 2000, it was 4,945,000. So again, there were over a million more people that were between the ages of 80 and 84 10 years later, the aging population. By 2010, 2010, that number jumped to 5,743,000. Wow. That's between the ages of 80 and 84. So each year, each year, each 10 years, <laughs> the population is, is getting older. Now, the final one I want to go to, because this kind of struck my interest, mm-hmm. between the ages of 90 and 94, there were 769,000 people, 769,000 people in 1990 between the ages of 90 and 94. Mm-hmm. In 2000, that number was 1,112,000. By 2010, between 90 and 94 years of age, it was 1,448,000 plus people. That's yeah. almost a half a million more. Yes, yes. And and really, you know, between the ages of 95, well, actually 95 and above, there are 424,000 people. This is in 2010. 
So if you kind of um, take those numbers and, and extrapolate them forward, you would think now there would be close to a million people over the age of 95 statistically based on how the incremental increases have gone up every 10 years. So is that because there's more people or is it because we're living longer or both? Uh, probably a combination of both. Now, I can't tell specifically on that, but I would say probably a percentage of both, a little bit of both. So in percentage wise, our percentage of population in 1990 above 65 years of age was 12%. Now it's over 13% in 2010. So the increase, even the percentage of the population has gone up. So, so I guess the concern is that with more patients and more facilities, there will be more victims of abuse and neglect. Yeah, exactly. There are that many more people that are, you know, I hate to say it this way, but they're going to be in the system, the system of nursing homes and elder care facilities as they, you know, they're eventually probably going to evolve because there's going to be that many more people looking for a place to take care of their mom, their dad, their loved one as they get older and can't be cared for at home properly. I feel like a lot of people, until you get to a certain age, you don't necessarily think about this either because we're all aging and you sure. have to start thinking about where you're going to be. What is your right, life going right. to look like? You right. know, you may know what it's going to look like in your 70s and you're perfectly fine to stay at home and then your 80s and then if one spouse passes and I know that's a hard thing to think about, but these nursing homes and these facilities, uh, they're a very real future They're for cropping most up of all us. over the place. They're all over the place. And one of the things too, on a side note, um, it's interesting, to open a nursing home, you don't have to have a medical degree. Anyone can open a nursing home. Now, there's certain standards you have to abide by regarding the personnel that work there, but you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse or someone with a medical degree of any sort to open a nursing home. Anyone can do that. Wow. So, I don't again, think, standards yeah. are, are going to have to evolve as the population evolves. It's probably going to be a completely different setup 10 years from now as to how nursing homes are, are, are going to be looking. But I'll say this, you know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Right. We know that. But there is always the need to look ahead and think about what to do. You know, my parents both, uh, they're deceased now, but we had to face the the uh, moving my mom to a nursing home as her Alzheimer's and dementia progressed to the point my dad couldn't care for her. He stayed at home because the facility where she was, um, you know, he, he wouldn't fit in and wasn't even allowed to be on that on that floor with dementia and Alzheimer's patients. So he stayed at home. He was still able to uh, care for himself and, and do things on a normal daily routine, even driving before he passed. But my mom had evolved to the point with her condition that she had to be cared for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and he couldn't do it. I have done a podcast on my specific show. I was about to get to that. Where yes, go ahead. we talked about, we talked to my aunt who just wrote a book called Stolen Cake, and it's the journey of my aunt as a caregiver for my grandmother who had dementia uh, into Alzheimer's and caring for her in the late stages of her life because the facilities weren't up to her what she expected the level of care for my grandmother to be. So it was extremely yeah. expensive and yet there were things that they couldn't guarantee her safety um, her very food, her things, meals, right. there were just, again, very basic things with Alzheimer's and dementia. And reading that book, doing the podcast, really, and, and having you as a resource with my aunt talking through this. Right, this was right. very real. And this I'm going to plug that podcast because it was a great one. It's a Status Life with Lita. 
L-E-T-A, Status mm-hmm. Life with Lita. Look it up. It's it's an incredible podcast anyway. But go to that episode uh, where we do discuss the book, Stolen Cake. Great book. And it's a great too. book. You can buy yeah. that on Amazon. It was phenomenal. Just, just a great read. And I didn't want the plug. I, we were just talking about elder care and the facilities. So let's get back to your show. You mentioned a few specific points you still wanted to address from that last podcast. Let's start with the first one. You wanted to go back over some of the tips in what to look for if you suspect nursing home abuse or neglect. Yes. And I want to start with the tips because to me, that's the most important part. You've got to realize that in your position as the loved one of someone in a nursing home, you may be their only advocate because they may not be able to speak for themselves or uh, you know, stand up and, and uh, address these things as they happen. So it's incumbent upon you to make sure that you have their best interest at heart, number one, with the facility you choose, but number two, to make sure that you just don't put them there, and, and I hate to say it this way, but put them there and leave them there. You've got to speak up. You've got to be aware and alert of these things to look for. So think about these things. These are just a few tips to consider as you're thinking of specific points to to um, you know be concerned about number one unexplained changes in their mood you know your family your loved one your mom your dad better than anybody else so look for those unexplained changes in their demeanor their mood the person they used to be as opposed to potentially the person they're becoming based on the neglect or abuse that they're trying to hide or trying to deal with and not telling you about look for bruises lacerations cuts Broken bones, that's an easy one to see many times, but it also may not be. If the bruise is in a hidden part of their body, you you hate to think about it, but you may have to inspect mom or dad's legs, their arms, their chest, their torso, to look for those areas where bruises may be or lacerations, cuts. And broken bones, you're going to see bruising generally with a broken bone, so that may be an indicator if you see something, even a finger. Uh, I had a case several years ago where someone had a broken finger that a patient at a nursing home, the man was not able to speak for himself, but the broken finger wound up resetting and almost crooked if you looked at it in the, in the photographs. So it was a very painful period of time, I'm sure, for him uh, to deal with a broken finger that the staff never took care of. But he also didn't have someone that frequently was coming to, to be with him and, and see that. Aww, so another thing for him, think about this frequent injuries without explanation from the staff. If every time you go, you see another cut, another scrape, uh, another bruise, then, you know, you need to find out what's going on with that. We talked about this in depth in the last podcast, dehydration and malnutrition. The percentage of people in in nursing home, it's about 80% that suffer some level of dehydration or and or malnutrition. Um, Use of restraints. People don't think about this, but restraints will be used in nursing homes if someone is violent to other patients or potentially to themselves or to staff, it's not uncommon for them to be strapped to a bed, arms, legs, or both. Um, I know of a story of someone who was headbutted by a patient and had teeth knocked out. Now, the, the patient was a very physically big individual, but they had to restrain to, to sedate, to medicate, to stop the aggression. But those are times, where, there are also things too where Um, the restraint can be too tight or not appropriate for your mom or your dad or your loved one. Um, If you find that they're starting to withdraw from activities that they once enjoyed, whether it's watching TV, crocheting, knitting, whatever they like to do, and suddenly they stop and they don't find any enjoyment, putting puzzles together. And that's a lot of bingo, a lot of puzzles. Yeah. A lot of bingo. Don't they play bingo in the nursing (laughs) home? Yes. Yes. If you find that when you're with them, they appear nervous or even uneasy when a caretaker walks in the room. 
So if you're there sitting in the room with mom or dad or loved one and a nurse or an orderly walks in to change the bed linens or to bring a food tray and you immediately notice that they kind of cower in the corner or change their demeanor because that person may have walked in the room, that could be an indicator as well. Um, think about bed sores or bed injuries, asphyxiation where they're, uh, again, left alone in the bed and they're not able to move themselves. And being in the bed too long can lead to open wounds and bed sores, which are not pleasant. They're uh, pressure ulcers, basically, is what they are. And, and it's, it's something that, again, will require, you hate to say it, but an inspection of, of their body to find those kind of things. They could very well be hidden. Um, if they're emotionally upset or agitated, um, if they get angry and they're not someone who was prone to anger before, that could be brought on because of them trying to hide that abuse or neglect that they've been dealing with when you're not around and and that's their way of kind of lashing out um if you see that they fall a lot or, or you find out or you're told frequently oh they fall all the time but when you're with them they're not falling think about that you know you come in and they've got bruises and and the the nursing staff or someone working there says oh your mom she falls all the time that's why she's bruised up but interestingly enough if you're there for three or four hours and mom never falls once and never even looks like she's going to fall, well, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe that's not necessarily what's happened. Um, infections um, from not having wounds addressed properly or sores that, that can lead to infection. And then another final one is is when if they wander, wander the hallways, or you find that they're not able to be engaging as they've been in the past when you visited them. Now, some of that can be the progression of conditions, Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever it may be. But if you find that they're just wandering aimlessly and not involved and not engaged, those are all tips to look for uh, to, to see potential um, neglect or abuse. This is a hard topic. It is. It's very hard. Uh, my heart it is, is just very hard. It's very hard right to now. get these phone calls. But also, too, it's inspiring on some level that I can help. I know. I, to to yes. get mom I commend or dad you. Or Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for doing yeah, this. And, you're welcome. You're, and and even using this podcast to be a voice well, to and teach that's the all purpose. of us. Right. That, that is the purpose because some of these things, the listener may be sitting there going, well, you know, I've noticed that. Well, yeah, I've noticed that, too. Well, yeah, I've noticed that, too. Mm -hmm. And it may be the red flag to say, well, wait a minute. There yeah. may be a lot more to it I don't know about. And it's time to find out. Very helpful. Okay. While we were talking about what to look for, why don't you review the different types of abuse or neglect? Yeah, we talked about these in the last podcast. I don't want to spend too much time, but these were things that um, that that I think you should consider when you think about the different types of abuse. Um, physical abuse, number one, that, that's kind of the obvious mm -hmm. one. Bruises, Bruises cuts, cuts. You know, abrasions, broken bones, that kind of thing. I hate to say it, but sexual abuse is probably second on that list. It's that, unfortunately, that prominent uh, in, in complaints where... Either your your loved one um, is abused sexually by an employee or potentially another patient. Again, that happens. I hate to say it, but it, it does happen. Emotional or psychological abuse. That's probably the toughest one to spot um, because you're not there when someone comes in and, and verbally berates your mom or your dad, uh, tells them how unloved they are or how much of a burden they are on, on the family. Oh, you're just a pain. Your family puts you here because they don't want to take care of you anymore. That's that's brutal to mm -hmm. someone who's you know elderly and and you know not happy being where they are to begin with, but being told that no one loves them. And I've 
I had calls about that kind of thing. Mm. Um, abandonment, neglect, um, financial abuse, where they tap into the checkbook of mom or dad or the credit cards out of their purse. You got to be aware of that. And then also to self-neglect. Uh, sometimes patients, unfortunately, will will injure themselves, either intentionally or sometimes just uh, you know not intentionally, just an accident. They may be having a more difficult time moving around, but there are a lot of intentional injuries caused you know to themselves that that even still the staff needs to be aware of that and make sure that they're not in a position where they can injure themselves, whether it be cutting or or any other kind of injury again, they can cause to themselves. Well, based on those categories, what is the most common form of elder abuse? Yeah, I kind of touched on this briefly. That's That's got to be the psychological and emotional abuse. It's also likely very unreported, too, statistically, um, simply because some may not even know that what's going on is emotional or, or mental abuse. I mean, if they hear it and they process it in the moment and they're terrified in that moment, but because of memory issues, they don't remember it Correct. five minutes later or five days later when mom or when the, the, their loved ones come to visit them. Um, but continual emotional mistreatment is, is also very damaging because it comes um, internalized and, and it can result into late life emotional problems, depression, uh, impairment. And the last thing you want to do is have your loved one spend their latter years depressed and, and upset and withdrawn emotionally because they're they're fighting with those mental and emotional scars being caused by the people who are there supposedly to take care of them. But also, too, I don't want to lose sight of the fact it can come from other patients. It's not just limited to the staff. But if another patient is the one doing it, still the responsibility still falls on the shoulders of the staff because they're there to protect and care for your loved one, meaning prevent those other patients from even doing things if it's coming from that source. I don't think... I know I personally, so this is my own opinion, I don't think about it being another patient, but yet it makes so much sense. Yeah. You have so many agitated memory loss. Uh, there's so many different reasons. We briefly touched on my aunt, and, and she even described my grandmother was this teeny tiny little sweet lady and her agitation and her anxiety. I couldn't imagine being a more boisterous personality and being in a place like that and then your agitation comes out because of your dementia you I, I know I personally would probably go crazy well I'll also say this too and and when we think about Alzheimer's and and we think about dementia and those kinds of things it's terrible but we also think usually somebody in their 80s maybe their late 70s but 80s 90s where that effect becomes more prominent well the nursing home my mom was in at first when she was still very mobile um, there was a lady there who was only 43 years of age with full-blown Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And she was very physically, I don't want to say physically fit, but physically able to, to run if she wanted to or skip up and down the hallway. But mentally, she was suffering the effects of Alzheimer's, full-blown. So someone with that age compared to someone in their 80s or older or whatever, if that 40-plus-year-old person got very agitated and, and got aggressive, this lady wasn't, but if she did, then she could do some very serious harm to someone much older than her, more feeble. I don't want to play devil's advocate here, okay? I'm on your side. But I think this would be very hard to prove, the emotional one. That yes, would it be, is. That's why I say I, it is the hardest to prove. It's the hardest to prove. But I'm thinking as the defense. Like, so let's say you get a call about this. 
as the family, they need to do all the documentation. And I'm sure you're, you, you know, we've talked about all the steps, but that's just what pops into mind is the other ones are physical. There's evidence. There's hard evidence of all of these mm-hmm. things. The emotional, especially if they can't remember. Right, right. And How there are ways, do you prove it? There, there are ways to prove it. I mean, there are things that can be done, whether it be uh, hidden cameras, potentially. I've had people that have done that before, whether it be uh, recording devices or other patients who are there that witness it that tell you about it. Um, you know, someone may go to visit their mom in the neighbor room. Uh, someone walks over and says, hey, look, I'm, you weren't here, but I heard the nurse or I heard the orderly or somebody come in the room. And they were berating your mom. They were berating your dad, whoever it is. And it was brutal. I, I couldn't believe the things they were saying. And you may ask your, your loved one, and they say, well, I don't remember that. Yeah. But you have to rely on what the other person in the other room may have heard or witnessed firsthand to, to potentially be able to prove what was going on. Well, let's move on. Is there any statistic about the average stay in a nursing home before death? Yes, Yes, and this kind of was surprising. I looked this statistic up purposely for the show because I I did have this question come through the website, and I thought it was kind of interesting. So the most recent stats uh, in a study in October of 2020, so it's not that long ago. Uh, We're now in January of 2021, so only a few months ago. This shows that the median stay in in a nursing home is only five months. Five months. What? All I want to say is why. Well, unfortunately it could be death it could be that something's happened and they've moved them to a different nursing home it could be that they were um, you know having to go into a hospital for uh, whether it be some sort of palliative treatment towards the end or hospice Uh, but yeah the average the median stay is is only five months so 53 percent of residents this is sad but 53 percent die within the first six months of admission well there's the why the drive to live and many of them may be gone at that point Mm -hmm. Um, you know I, I I'm a burden. Okay, this is where I'm supposed to go uh, to live out my final few, in this case, five months. months. Yeah. Uh, but the median stay is, this is also interesting too, the median stay for, for women is longer than it is for men. For women, the median stay is about eight months. For men, it's about four months. I'll have longer than you. <laughs> I wasn't going to go down that path, but since you <laughs> did. You knew I was going to say it. Yeah, but if I have you around, I'll still have the drive to live. We're going to be like we'll the notebook. That. Yes. We're going to lay down together in the nursing home and, that, and we'll just go to sleep. Yes, ma'am. That's what everybody wants. It, tr- it is. Yeah, well, That's yes. what everybody wants. Well, my, my parents I passed know, away 19 days apart. 19, she couldn't live without him. Yeah, he, he was still going to see her and yep. she was, again, full-blown dementia and Alzheimer's and, and he stopped coming. Because uh, he passed away. He passed away and so 19 days later, uh, she made a very dramatic spiral in her health and, and 19 days later she passed. Even though she didn't know who he was oh. anymore, it's just that he was not coming anymore. And he was going as many as five or six days a week and staying there for six or eight hours a day. I remember when I made you watch that movie. Oh, yeah. and I had no, I, it's just, it's your family. That's your yeah. mom and dad yeah. with her not that knowing and, and him every single day going and yeah. caring for her. I love it. All right, let's keep going with the show. Another point you wanted to talk about is why most nursing home patients do not say anything when they have been abused or neglected or if they've witnessed it firsthand. Yes, I do want to talk a little more about that. First of all, we said this statistic last show, and and it's that important. I want to say it again, and that is 95%, 95% of all nursing home patients have either witnessed firsthand physical or mental or emotional abuse or had it happen to themselves. 
That's amazing. I, I mean, know. it's horrible. It's terrible. But 95% of either seen it or had it happen to them. So the number one So it's reason, almost 100% ratio that yeah. it's happening. Yeah, yes, yes. Yes. And these are statistics, many of which are put out by medical institutions or medical guides or medical publications. It's coming from that field about, again, an, an area of their own field and nursing homes specifically. Um, but the number one reason why elderly people do not talk about abuse or neglect or you don't really know, they don't say anything, is fear. Fear. Either fear of it continuing to happen or getting even worse or fear of the person that's done it and intimidation. They just are afraid. They're terrified. Um, next would probably be the inability to communicate with anyone. So as, unfortunately, certain conditions take root and, and get worse, dementia, Alzheimer's, other conditions, they may lose the ability to talk. Or, or communicate at all. Um, and so if they can't communicate, there's no way for them to write it on a piece of paper, spell it out to you, say it to you, but yet they're getting abused and they're still in there. They're still feeling it mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, you also need to consider the fact that sometimes they may not be, be as believable as they were before because you go and see mom or you see dad and they tell you about a hurricane that just came through the day before and it's the middle of winter and there's no hurricane anywhere around but it's in their mind what they're thinking about in that moment so if they tell you something quite frankly crazy like that and in the same breath they tell you that something happened it may be that the believability is not as what it would have been mm -hmm. otherwise um, medication concerns medication concerns in the sense that they may be given medicine or medications that would not allow them to even know whether especially uh, the, the physical or, or sexual abuse that it's even happened if they're given medications to the point where they're knocked out they're not aware of it they have no clue uh, then they can't tell you about it because they don't even know about it or they didn't realize it uh, and then finally the old uh, you know I'm, I put this in quotes specifically because it, it I can hear a lot of people saying it I just want to be a, don't want to be a problem anymore I just don't want to be a problem and so they think by telling you about what's going on, it's going to create more problems for you to have to deal with. Oh, now i got to find somewhere else for mom or dad to go. Oh, man, this is going to be a burden on me. And the answer is no, it's not. It's what you are you should be doing to care for the one who probably cared for you when you were an infant, took care of your needs then. Well, it's time for you to take care of their needs now. Um, so that it makes much more it makes it much more important for the family and loved ones to to be their advocate. I said this earlier. You've got to be an advocate for your loved one. You need to be aware of really the five main signs of abuse or neglect uh, when you visit or you have a video conference and, and some of these things I, I keep talking about. All right, I'm going to go back through them real quick. You've got the five main signs here. Number one, emotional abuse signs and symptoms. Number two, delayed or inappropriate emotional development. Number three, loss of self-confidence or self-esteem. Number four, social withdrawal or a loss of interest or enthusiasm. Depression goes along with that. Number five, avoidance of certain situations such as refusing to go to school or ride the bus. And I want to add a sixth one to that list. I had five, but let me throw a sixth one in yeah, there. Yeah, what you got? And that's desperately seeking affection. Affection is something that can heal wounds. Mm -hmm. And if those wounds are deep, physical, mental, emotional wounds, then they may also, too, be a little more affectionate or, or look for you to give them affection. Hugs, hold your hands, snuggle up next to you. Uh, something to try and, and, again, alleviate that pain. 
comfort, all of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, just all that love. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm certain everyone listening, their heart is just bleeding wide open as mine is now. So tell someone if they suspect, if they have evidence, uh, what do they do uh, to talk about their loved one about a potential abuse or neglect claim? All right. Call my office. I'll be the one to talk to you. I may, if I'm on a phone call or in a deposition or hearing, I may have the paralegal at least initially start the conversation, but you will talk to me. You will talk to me either in that first phone call or as soon as I get a chance and break free to be able to call you back, I will. Number one, it is completely confidential. Anything you share with me, I cannot, will not share with anyone else. Uh, because it's part of what I need to do to investigate what happened. But more importantly, you need to feel the freedom of being able to discuss it with me. So it will be completely confidential. We'll discuss all the specifics of your concerns. But I want to make sure I stress that it is confidential. Number two, it's free. The initial consultation is absolutely free. So it doesn't cost you a thing to talk to me to at least, if nothing else, maybe relieve your concerns about what's going on um, in, in the moment with, again, your loved one in that nursing home. I'm going to ask several questions to help me determine specific basic elements of a potential claim. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, some of which may be tough, but I've got to find the information. Um, most of the time, callers have already been able to obtain a lot of proof, but I want to review all that proof. I want to know who they've talked to, what they've got, photographs, those kinds of things. Um, I'm going to ask questions to build the case, if there is a case, uh, to be able to pursue it. So. I'm going to ask things that, that I need to know purposely to be able to determine if there are the elements of a, of a case there, a nursing home abuse and neglect case. So let's start really with the definition of, it, it kind of falls under the purview of medical malpractice, but also nursing home abuse or neglect. You're looking for a claim where the defendant is any kind of medical provider, or in this case, a home where someone would be um, living, the responsibility falls on the nursing home. Um, you got to, to allege and be able to prove that the defendant, the nursing home, breached a duty of care while providing that care for their patients. Um, so really, let's think about the elements of, of the, the case, the elements of a, a nursing home abuse or neglect case. Number one, a duty of care. You've got to show that there's some element of a duty of care that they owe to the patients in that nursing home. Duty of care means food, it means shelter, it means clothing, it means medication, it means caring for all their specific medical needs while they're there. So you've got to show that there is a duty of care created for that defendant in light of the responsibility for your loved one. Next, you've got to show a breach of that duty. They did something, we refer to it many times as a deviation from the normal standard of care. They did something that was not according to what that duty calls for them to do. Um, you know, in a nursing home, you think about giving the wrong medication. You think about uh, uh, you know, potentially not feeding them or not if they're not eating, which is something they have to look for, if they're not physically able to feed themselves or they're just not eating anymore, that the full plate of food goes in front of them and the full plate of food is pulled away from them. They've got to be aware of that kind of thing. That That is part of the duty of care, to make sure they're getting the food, nutrition, and uh, we talked about uh, dehydration, but make sure they're getting all those uh, basic needs as someone who requires that kind of care. So first look for the duty of care. Second, look for the breach of duty of care, which is the standard that they're supposed to provide and, and not following those standards. Third is causation. Causation means you've got to show that something was caused as a result of the breach of that duty. Um, think about the wrong medication. It could cause death. 
worst case scenario. It could cause uh, some very severe reactions, uh, allergic reactions, chemical reactions, if they give them the wrong medication. So that would be the causation factor. Then finally, damages. Damages would be medical bills if they have to go to the hospital. It could be bills related to um, you know, transferring to another facility. It could be bills related to the basic care. But it also goes to the medical, I mean, the, the physical side. Um, you know, again, the, the pain, the suffering, the, the physical aspects of their injury. If it's a fall, if it's a um, someone brutally attacked or sexually attacked by a patient or an employee there. So those are all the things that we have to establish and therefore the things I'm going to ask about if you call my office. I want to see photographs. I want to see video. I want to see anything and everything you've got that can help me create and build that case for, for your purposes. I know I had brought it up earlier, the proving it, right? And we were yeah. talking about the emotional neglect specifically, specifically, and I thought that that would be the most difficult to prove, especially if there's been some memory loss. But they can all be difficult to prove, complicated. Let's sure. put it that way. They yeah, can all be very. complicated. So give us some points. How do you go about trying to prove all this in a case? Well, think about this. It could be a one-time thing, a one-time event where a patient comes in and brutally beats your loved one or an employee does, or it could be chronic episodes of abuse, something that's happened repeatedly. Uh, but really the main things to think about, number one, watch and make notes. If you see signs of abuse, write down the date, the time, the people involved, and take photographs. Uh, I always tell people, too, if you take a photograph with your cell phone camera, you'll see the date that cam that photo was taken. But it's also good, too, to write the date on a piece of paper and have your loved one hold it. You know, if it's January 1st of 2021, write 1121 and have them hold it, showing that that's what the bruise looked like or the abrasion or whatever it may be. So watch and make notes. Number two obtain the nursing home medical records as well as any medical records if they were taken to a hospital because of an injury or had to have additional care we we want to see those records we want to know what was going on uh, so i can review those records and look for inconsistencies uh unnecessary treatments bad you know wrong medication um lack of any explanation for the injury they're taken to the hospital for a broken leg but there's no reason explained as to why they broke their leg especially if it's a bedridden patient who doesn't get out of the bed. I keep mentioning photographs. I'm going to mention it again. It is a powerful piece of evidence. Take as many photographs as you can. But, you know, we talked about physical things on the body, but also think about this. Think about sold bedding or unsafe premises. Um, if there are things that are concerns in the room. I had a patient, not a patient, I had a client one time who um, ants had come into the room oh. through the window. Oh and gotten into the bed and they were red fire ants and there were bites all up and down the legs of the patient who was bedridden from fire ants that were shown in a you know lance ants will follow a line mm -hmm. the line led to the window oh. where they came in through the window and had gotten underneath the covers and had bitten the patient all over the legs so those are things you got to think about so photos um many times there's an ombudsman that may be involved a long-term term cure Ombudsman I've is never advocate. heard that term. Yeah, most people haven't. If you put someone in a nursing home where you have to make that decision, you're going to learn about what an ombudsman does. Okay. Uh, but they're there for residents of a nursing home. They're um, they're really there to kind of be an advocate for the person and, and also to make sure they check out any problems or concerns or complaints about a nursing home. Um, they're, they'll have very detailed records of any prior complaints with a nursing home. Uh, also, too, what the outcome may have been of that. So 
make sure you you communicate with the ombudsman and the nursing home where your your loved one may be. Witness statements. Witness witness statements can come from other patients, can come from other employees, can come from you or your loved ones that may have been there. And inspections and licenses. I will look into the inspections in the nursing home. I'll find out when it was inspected last. I'll look at the license to make sure it's updated and those kinds of things that are important. And then finally, really, the, the only way to prove a case, I hate to say it, is really to hire an attorney. Because we know, I know what needs to be done to, to not only address this, but pursue the claim on behalf of the family and, and the loved one. Absolutely. That was a long list of duty of care, breach of duty, causation, damages. I wouldn't know where to start. And most people don't. And that's why, again, there's no harm in calling. If you have a concern, call me. I'd be, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. And, and if there is something there, then I will be happy to pursue it for you. I I, I kind of take these cases a little more personal because I had my mom in a nursing home. So I understand the decision is difficult to begin with to put your loved one in a place where you're not going to be there with them. They're going to be by themselves. And I understand the difficulty of, of you know, that decision alone. But when you find out that your mom or your dad, your loved one has been abused or neglected in a place that you made the decision to put them, trust me, it, it'd be very, it's a very hard burden to, to shoulder. I know on a personal level, your dad was still living. He didn't want your mom to go there. So he no. hid from you and your siblings. How the, bad she had progressed. How bad, right. The severity yeah. of, of where she was mentally. Because oh. he did not want to face the, the mm-hmm. idea of, of her needing to go to a nursing home and be there. Oh. Well, I know that you wanted to finish the show today by talking about a case in California that caught your attention. So we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Thank you for your education. Nursing home neglect is very real, something that we are facing and all will face. But let's jump to this case uh, because I I think everyone's going to find this very interesting. Yeah, I've brought things like this to the, the podcast before, and this one really caught my attention. And this also, too, kind of, to me, solidifies that the fact that many times you need to seek out an attorney's help because health insurance, car insurance, Really, any kind of insurance can can play games, can create problems. But I saw this story this week in, in one of the the attorney websites that I'm involved in, and, and it really, it really to me, needs to be brought to light. I don't think I've seen this on any national newscast. I don't really think I've seen this very many other places other than that. But Aetna Health Insurance, and I'm going to call them out because they in this case, did some really bad things, and they're not the only one, but Aetna Health Insurance had to settle a lawsuit in which a company medical director, an Aetna employee, under oath, meaning in a deposition, with a penalty of perjury attached to that, under oath, he said he never looked at a patient's records when deciding whether or not to deny coverage. Think about that. I'm speechless. Your your health insurance company, the, the medical records and bills are submitted purposely for their review. He admitted under oath, yeah, I never looked at them when I denied coverage. Never even looked at them. He simply rubber-stamped a denial of a claim without even looking at the medical records. And in his testimony that prompted this investigation, his testimony prompted an investigation by the California Insurance Commissioner, and the health insurance, uh, Aetna, vowed that they were going to fight this battle. And they did. It went through litigation until eventually it did settle this week. But they claimed that the medical director's comments were taken out of context. How many times do you hear people say, Oh, that was just taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it wasn't. He said under oath, I never looked at the records. Never. They strongly defended the policies. Um, you know, when the story broke initially, 
back in February of 2018, and they said when their policies are called into question, we will defend them. That was a quote from one of their directors at Aetna, an Aetna spokesperson. So they settled this case in late March of last year ahead of trial. The undisclosed amount uh, in another somewhat related case, um, they, they paid out, I believe it was uh, $25 million on a case where they denied coverage on a cancer patient. This wasn't that. But in this case, the plaintiff was um, a college kid, and he had a rare immune disorder, blood disorder, um, and he was first denied coverage. And that's when the battle started. He was insured by Aetna. He was fighting a rare immune blood disorder and, and looked to his health insurance to pay the associated medical bills with his treatment. So when they started doing the investigation, the insurance commissioner's office there in California, they found it, and I'm using their word troubling, that if the health insurer is making decisions to deny coverage without a physician actually ever reviewing the medical records, there's a problem. So not only was the adjuster not reviewing, a physician wasn't reviewing. No, no. That's it. Yes. So, you know, it, it just haphazard. It's like a, you, know, you imagine a dartboard yeah. on a wall and one part says no. And it's it's a large part. One little sliver of that bar, dartboard says, yes, we'll, we'll pay the claim. And they throw the dart to see where it lands. And that's where the decision is made. Not by looking at the medical records, not by talking to a physician. So there there weren't any cases in which a decision about the denial of coverage in this investigation should have been made by someone other than a physician. Um, so the, their conclusion was, you know, th- these are medical decisions and medical practitioners, physicians, are, are not even looking at it and adjusters aren't even looking at it either. So the medical community hoped this case would settle and kind of shed light on the ways that Aetna does this decision making because ultimately medical providers, hospitals, doctors' offices, they're the ones that aren't getting paid when a decision like that is being made. So he wound up suing Aetna, the college kid did, for breach of contract and bad faith in 2015. And, but their, their claim was that they denied coverage for the infusion and intravenous Im, uh, immunoglobin treatment that he needed because he had not had the proper blood work beforehand. He didn't comply. Even though they provided all the documents showing he had done all the blood work that was required, they, their decision to deny coverage was, well, he didn't have the blood work. He did. He did. It was all submitted. Nobody looked at the records. Not a soul looked at the records. So when this director was under oath and given his deposition, which was actually videotaped, um, they asked him. They said at, at one point he even went out of his way to correct the attorney, the, the, the plaintiff's attorney. Um, they said, you know, when he, he corrected himself saying the first part of the question is I'd have to review the medical records first before I could answer your question because he was asked a specific question about the records, he'd say, well, I'd have to review those records first before I could answer it. And then it came out in an admission that he had never even seen them. He'd never even seen the records, but yet he made a decision to deny coverage. Wow. I can see why this case gets you fired up. Well, it does. Jeez. I know. Absolutely. And and one final quick story along these lines. I know we're, we're... Usually don't go much more than 40 minutes, but I do have to say this quickly. Okay. Uh, as you know, a little over a year ago, I fell downstairs in yes. your house. Yes, we've talked about this before. Oh, I oh. broke three ribs. It was a tough time. But the initial hospital stay came immediately after. You took me to the hospital. I was, oh, it was awful. It was terrible pain. And when I got to the hospital, they checked me in. They admitted me. And I was there for three nights, I think it was. Total. The first time? Yeah, three nights the first time. They discharged me on a Monday. By Thursday of that week, after being discharged, my blood pressure went sky high. 
I had fever of 104 plus. I mean, it was awful. It was terrible that Thursday morning. So we went right back to the hospital. When we got back to the hospital, they did more tests. It turns out then they identified, at first they thought it was two broken ribs, but by then it was three fully broken, not cracked, not fractured, but completely broken in two, three ribs. I had a collapsed lung and I had pneumonia. Right. The collapsed lung and the pneumonia came after the first hospital Well, stay. because you weren't getting, uh, this is what they explained to me, the doctors, you weren't getting a good deep breath because the pain yeah. was so severe. Correct. But what was worse than all of this, why, and we didn't just go to the hospital. You were ambulanced the first time to a trauma center. Tra- yeah, right. Okay? Trauma we, center. we can go to an ER for a broken rib. I'm sure there's some tough guys listening to this like, mm-hmm. Yeah. You went to the hospital. Yes. Um, you have hereditary high blood pressure. You have since you were a teenager. And the pain from the broken ribs was sending your blood pressure to through the roof. Level. To stroke level. Right. So we ended up with that high fever. I took your blood pressure from a home cuff. And I was so scared. I ran downstairs, called my mother, and I was like, I don't know. She said, get him to the hospital now. So we drove back to the trauma center where you were readmitted, and they were working on you feverishly. Right. Well, Everybody. I was say, in a lobby you know? full of people, full of people yes, in that lobby. not a was, seat yeah, open. There wasn't a bed available right. in, the, in the nursing home. In the hospital, <laughs> anywhere, there wasn't a bed available. And, yeah. and you're right. They were working on me feverishly when I walked in, mm-hmm. when I walked in. When I came in, they put me in a wheelchair. I know. But they were hovering over me because it was that level of trauma in the moment. They had to address it. You were about to have a heart attack yeah, or that, a stroke. Yeah, that was their fear. Yeah. Right, exactly. So all that to be leading to the Yes, the, the that was our part, dramatic right, moment. That, of, that's the foundation. Well, the rest of the story is, so my health insurance company paid for my first hospital stay. But I am now fighting a battle with them mm-hmm. to pay for the second hospital stay because initially they determined it was not medically necessary. No, he's almost about to die. Your yeah. blood pressure was, what, 210 over... Oh, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's high. 150, 160, somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And I, a fever of 104. I'm like and, speechless. But, but yes, the, the... So you have pneumonia. You have a, a collapsed, collapsed lung, lung. Right. You have three broken ribs. And you have blood pressure in the stroke out levels. And you don't need to be in the hospital. Because it's not medically necessary. You were even in the yellow gown, which is the fall <laughs> right. risk. Right. I mean, they were coming into your room in full hazmat suits. And even more, everybody. Right, even more, that hospital stay, the second one, lasted another three or four days. I wasn't even positive you were going to make it. They weren't either. I know. <laughs> and yet, so, it's not medically right. necessary for you to be there. Why was I checked in and kept there for three or four more right. days? Right. right. So, it, again, that's a personal story, but it, it relates directly to what I just read in this story about Aetna. Sure. And I can see the frustration of this family who their teenage son has a blood disorder and needs medical assistance and the insurance that they chose and, and they pay for. for yeah, that's the key. Right. They chooses to deny them. These are frustrating battles. Yeah. Those are times when you've paid for that coverage, you expect to be able to use it. Yeah. And I'm sure there are countless thousands, millions probably of other stories about denying whether it's diabetic medication, cancer medication, or any other condition where people fight those real battles with insurance companies. You have another one in that uh, when your son was born. Just real quick. Yes. yes. So Don't do the whole thing. Just tell the punchline. Okay. So my two kids, the first kid was a C-section. So therefore, the second kid, you can decide if you want a C-section or not. So the second kid was a C-section. He was born and we got uh, probably six or eight months after his birth, we got a bill in the mail from the anesthesiologist. And so I called and I said, hey, we got this bill. I want to make sure you had your health, our health insurance. They said, yeah, we got it. We submitted it, but they denied it. I said, what? 
So turns out back then, he's now 19 years of age, I had to call and fight a battle with that health insurance company because they denied the anesthesiologist bill for a C-section. And so the person I spoke with, I'm sure I had a mental picture of them sitting in the cubicle somewhere, said, well, we decided it was not medically necessary. I said, so let me ask you this. How many times do you know of that people go into a hospital and have a C-section without an anesthesiologist there to, to do it? And it was quiet. And that, that quiet pause led to, we'll reevaluate this and we'll yeah, get back to I'm you. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And I never got another bill right. because they did pay it at that point. Lunacy. So for all of you listening, we've all fought the healthcare battles and we can bring you a case that is, you know, in the news and, and out there right now. But just listen, you're sitting here listening to the Injury Insider. This is Derek Hayes and this happens to all of us. So good luck. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Derek, you're fighting these battles. You've been injured. You have nursing home neglect. You said it once in the show, but we're going to close the show. Tell everyone how to reach you. You're here as a resource. Uh, they can submit questions if they have something they'd like to discuss as a future show or if they'd like to hire you as an attorney. Yes. Yes. There are many ways you can reach out to me. Number one, call. My office number is 777 777- Excuse me, 404. Let me start over. My number is 404 777 Hurt. 404 777 Hurt or 678 225 0970. You can always call me. If I'm available, I'll be happy to discuss it with you. As we said, it's always confidential. Number one. Number two, it's always free. That initial consultation is completely free. Next, you can look at my website. It's Derek, D E R E K. The letter M as in Matthew, Hayes, H-A-Y-S, so DerekMHayes.com. On my website, you can have a, we have a chat feature. You can chat directly with our office, or you can submit a question directly to me through the email portion of the website. Or if you have a question for the podcast, there's a podcast tab. You can submit your question there. I just need some very basic facts about any potential, potential claim or your question if it's about the podcast. Next, you can go to my Facebook page. It's Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. You can find me there. You can always message me, message me through that or Instagram, Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. So any of those platforms, reach out to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Look forward to discussing your potential case. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes, presented by Status Home Design and the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com, selecting the Gwinnett Studio, then clicking on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. This program is also available on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, for Derek Hayes, I'm Lita Brooks, and you've been listening to Injury Insider on Business Radio X.